Welcome to a History of the Space Race Podcast, Episode 41, Gemini 9, The Angry Alligator. After the emergency that ended the Gemini 8 mission, NASA looked forward to Gemini 9. The hope was that Gemini 9 would accomplish all the goals that Gemini 8 could not due to its premature end. This included the rendezvous and docking with an Agena, learning double rendezvous and other advanced rendezvous techniques, and performing an extravehicular activity using an astronaut maneuvering unit. Gemini 9, however, will become known as the mission where everything went wrong. Misfortune hit Gemini 9 early with a fatal accident involving the astronauts. The prime astronauts selected for Gemini 9 were Elliot C. and Charles Bassett. The backup astronauts were Thomas Stafford and Eugene Cernan. On February 28, 1966, all four astronauts were flying from an Air Force base in Texas to St. Louis, Missouri. They were headed to the McDonnell factory to practice for their mission in simulators. The prime crew, C and Bassett, flew in a small two-seater T-38 trainer jet. The backup crew, Stafford and Cernan, flew in their own two-seater trainer jet. As the two planes approached St. Louis, the weather was poor. There were snow flurries. C and Bassett, who were flying ahead of Stafford and Cernan, made the first attempt to land in St. Louis. As C approached the runway, he realized he had flown too far and would overshoot the runway, so he decided to come back around for a second try. Stafford and Cernan then tried to approach the runway for their own landing. Stafford realized he too would overshoot the runway, so he decided to pull up and come back around. Following normal procedures, Stafford gained altitude and went back into the cloudy weather. He flew on instruments only and planned to come back around to the runway. C did not do this. Instead of pulling up to gain altitude, he decided to stay low. It appears that due to the bad weather, he was trying to keep within visual range of the runway rather than flying by instruments alone. As C flew around to come back to the runway, he flew too low. The aircraft struck the roof of one of the McDonnell buildings and crashed. C and Bassett died. Stafford and Cernan took over as Gemini 9's new prime crew. This was the first time that a backup crew actually had to be used. Because Stafford and Cernan had been training for the mission as well the whole time, 
there was no change in the Gemini flight schedule. Bad luck then followed misfortune. Gemini 9, like the Gemini 8 and Gemini 6 missions before it, planned to perform a rendezvous and docking with an Agena target vehicle. On May 17, 1966, NASA launched that Agena on top of an Atlas rocket in advance of launching Gemini 9. The Atlas booster had almost placed the Agena into orbit when one of the Atlas engines gimbal locked into a turnover position. In other words, the thrust of one engine was now stuck in a turn position. The result was that the Atlas ended up pointing back at Cape Canaveral like a missile. The Atlas engines then turned off and the booster separated from the Agena. But because the Atlas had been pointing in the wrong direction for the last part of the journey, the Agena failed to achieve orbit. A later investigation determined that there was a pinched wire in the Atlas rocket's autopilot. The failure of the otherwise reliable Atlas, however, meant there was now no Agena for the Gemini 9 mission. NASA did have a backup plan. Rather than docking with an Agena, Gemini 9 would now dock with the Augmented Docking Target Adapter, or ADTA. NASA had begun developing the Augmented Docking Target Adapter after the explosion of Gemini 6's Agena in October 1965. Remember that NASA initially did not know what had caused that Agena's failure. Because docking was a major objective of the Gemini program, NASA could not afford putting off that objective if there was no easy fix for the Agena. As a result, while Lockheed Martin was fixing the Agena, NASA asked McDonnell to put together an alternative vehicle to practice docking. That was the Augmented Docking Target Adapter. The ADTA was a rather crude and simple vehicle. The spacecraft was basically a cylinder with a small set of thrusters to control attitude. It had no ability to maneuver in orbit like the Agena. At the front of the augmented docking target adapter was a docking system refurbished from the Gemini 6 mission. This cylinder with a docking system on the front would be launched into orbit on top of an Atlas rocket. There was also one other potential backup option. The Agena from the Gemini 8 mission was still in orbit. But that Agena had been left in an orbit above 400 kilometers. NASA feared that Gemini 9 would not have sufficient fuel to get to Gemini 8's Agena and back. Although they could use Gemini 8's Agena to help maneuver Gemini 9 back into a lower orbit, 
they worried about what might happen if something went wrong with the operation of that Regina. So, NASA decided to launch the Augmented Docking Target Adapter and practice docking with that vehicle instead. On June 1st, 1966, NASA launched the ADTA on top of an Atlas rocket. The Augmented Docking Target Adapter was successfully put into orbit. All had not gone entirely well, however. NASA received signals indicating that the shroud around the docking adapter had not fully opened. The shroud is a cone that covered the docking system to give the spacecraft an aerodynamic profile while the Atlas carried it through the atmosphere. Once in orbit, the two halves of the shroud were supposed to open like a mouth to reveal the docking system. Despite this bad sign, NASA moved ahead with the launch of Gemini 9. Technically, because the first Gemini 9 mission had been canceled after the loss of the Agena, this was now Gemini 9A. Stafford and Cernan were sitting in Gemini 9A, ready to go. But the bad luck continued. Gemini 9A was supposed to launch shortly after the docking adapter was confirmed to be in orbit. But Launch Control decided to hold the launch by three minutes to put Gemini 9 in a closer orbit to the docking adapter. When the countdown resumed, new information had to be sent to the rocket in the spacecraft for the launch trajectory. But there was only a 40-second window to transmit this information. Equipment problems on the ground prevented the transmission of that information. As a result, Gemini 9 missed the launch window. Now the launch had to be delayed for two days. For Stafford, this sort of delay had seemingly become routine. Remember that Stafford had also been on the Gemini 6 mission. Gemini 6 had similarly become Gemini 6A after losing the Agena for that mission. In addition, Gemini 6A failed to launch the first time after the Titan rocket's malfunction detection system shut the rocket down. After each of these incidents, Stafford had to get out of the spacecraft and wait for another day to launch. Between the Gemini 6 and Gemini 9 missions, Stafford would sit in two spacecraft six times for two launches. On June 3rd, 1966, NASA tried again to launch Gemini 9A. This time the launch went well, and Stafford and Cernan were in orbit. Gemini 9 proceeded to rendezvous with the augmented docking target adapter. Gemini 9's radar began picking up the docking adapter 
about 200 kilometers away. When they were about 100 kilometers away, they could start to see the docking adapter. As they made their final approach, Stafford and Cernan could see that the shroud was indeed still on the docking adapter. The shroud had only partially opened. Stafford described the docking adapter like this. As you may have heard there, Stafford described the partially open shroud as being like the jaws of an alligator. This is a description that will stick. With the shroud only partially opened, docking with the adapter was not possible. Stafford approached within only a few feet of the docking adapter to describe the situation further to Mission Control. He stated that the explosive bolts that were supposed to cause the shroud to separate had blown, but it appeared that a lanyard of some sort had been taped down and held the shroud in place. Stafford suggested that the shroud might be opened all the way and released if he nudged it with the nose of the Gemini 9 spacecraft. Mission Control told him not to try. The lanyard wires had a high tensile strength, so it would not be as easy as it looked to simply nudge the shroud open. He could end up just damaging Gemini 9. Another suggestion was to perform a spacewalk to try and release the shroud. An extravehicular activity was one of the major objectives of Gemini 9. Gemini 9 carried an astronaut maneuvering unit for this purpose. The astronaut maneuvering unit, or AMU, was a backpack developed by the Air Force. The backpack carried a life support system and a zip gun to help the astronaut maneuver while free-floating in space. The Air Force was quite desperate for NASA to test out the astronaut maneuvering unit. The Air Force had spent $12 million on the unit and hoped to test it during the Gemini program. One of the Air Force's objectives was actually to have an astronaut use the unit to inspect a satellite or another spacecraft. The Air Force was appalled 
when NASA decided to cancel extravehicular activities for Gemini's 5, 6, and 7, as this limited the opportunities to test the astronaut maneuvering unit. NASA then planned to use the unit during Gemini 8. In accordance with the Air Force's desire to see if an astronaut could use the unit to inspect a satellite, the plan had been for David Scott to inspect Gemini 8's Agena after docking and to retrieve a meteorite impact experiment from the Agena. The stuck thruster emergency of Gemini 8 foiled all those plans, however. Now seemed like the perfect opportunity to use the astronaut maneuvering unit. Cernan could use the unit to travel over to the augmented docking target adapter and further investigate and potentially fix the problem. But NASA decided not to attempt this. To fix the problem, Cernan would have had to cut the metal wire lanyard that was holding the shroud together. Mission Control worried that the sharp edges of the wire could cut the spacesuit. This exhausted the options to fix the docking adapter, meaning Gemini 9 had just failed the docking mission, one of its major mission objectives. A subsequent investigation revealed that the problem with the docking adapter's shroud had been caused by just a slight lack of coordination. There were three contractors involved. McDonald had manufactured the docking adapter. Douglas Aircraft manufactured the shroud. But the shroud was originally designed to fit around Lockheed Martin's Agena. As a side note, in 1967, McDonald and Douglas Aircraft will merge to form McDonald Douglas. But as of now, they are still separate companies. Before the launch of the docking adapter, McDonald engineers went through a dry run to install the shroud with the assistance of a Douglas engineer. During this practice run, they performed every part of the installation except for the part dealing with the lanyards of the electrical disconnect for the explosive bolts. On launch day, the Douglas engineer was on leave as his wife was about to have a baby. So the McDonald engineers went through all the steps that they had practiced previously until they got to the part about these lanyards, which were just metal wires. The McDonald engineers didn't know what to do, so they looked at the installation instructions for the shroud. But the instructions were for the installation of the shroud around the Agena. And the instructions just said, see blueprint. But the blueprint for the Agena obviously wasn't relevant here. So not sure what to do, the McDonald engineers just taped the wire down so they weren't dangling. 
There's a photograph of this if you want to click on the episode description or go to spaceracehistorypodcast.com. That tape was what kept the shroud from opening. From this rather vexing experience, NASA learned to keep experienced personnel around for launch and to simulate all processes completely on practice runs. With the objective of docking now failed, Gemini 9 moved on to the next objective, learning rendezvous techniques. Gemini 9 attempted multiple re-rendezvous with the augmented docking target adapter. First, Gemini 9 increased its orbital speed. This put Gemini 9 in a higher orbit than the docking adapter. They later decreased their orbital speed again, putting them back in the same orbit as the adapter and re-rendezvoused. This maneuver allowed Gemini 9 to see what rendezvous was like from above the target. They then tried re-rendezvous by lowering Gemini 9's relative orbital speed. This put Gemini 9 in a lower orbit than the docking adapter. As a result, they gained on the adapter and then increased speed to return to the same orbit as the adapter for rendezvous. This allowed them to practice rendezvous from below a target, which they had already done once before. This time, however, they approached from below the target to test whether rendezvous could be achieved without a radar. Questions about the necessity of a radar for rendezvous had been raised by the Apollo program. You see, initially, both the Apollo Command Module and the Apollo Lunar Excursion Module had radars for rendezvous. But weight limitations led to the removal of the radar from the Command Module. Now, the Apollo engineers wanted to remove the radar from the Lunar Excursion Module as well for the same reason. The Apollo engineers speculated that rendezvous could be achieved visually, perhaps with the aid of flashing lights. The astronauts all hated this idea. They wanted the radar. So it was decided that Gemini 9 should see whether a radar was really necessary for rendezvous or not. To simulate the feasibility of a rendezvous without a radar in conditions similar to around the moon, this second re-rendezvous between Gemini 9 and the augmented docking target adapter was performed over the Sahara Desert. The albedo, or brightness, of the desert was similar to the albedo of the lunar surface. Gemini 9 also approached the target from below because this is what the lunar module would have to do when rendezvousing with the command module in lunar orbit. Stafford and Cernan reported that they could not see the augmented docking target adapter 
but fortunately the radar on Gemini 9 had picked up the target. They reported being able to see the adapter when they were about 37 kilometers away if there was some darkness and sunlight or moonlight reflecting off the target. But in full sunlight, they could not see the target at all until they were only about 6 kilometers away. They reported that without the radar, they would have totally blown the rendezvous attempt. Gemini 9 had now at least completed one mission objective of learning more rendezvous techniques. The third major mission objective was to perform a spacewalk with the astronaut maneuvering unit. Originally, the spacewalk had been planned for day two of the mission, but as you'll hear in this clip, the spacewalk was delayed. Gemini 9, Houston. Uh, Roger, it's the ground recommendation that we postpone the EVA activity till uh, the third day. Uh, would you uh, agree with that? Uh, we recommend uh, very heartily with that uh, recommendation. Roger, good. After performing several rendezvous with the docking adapter and getting only about 40 minutes of sleep at a time, Stafford and Cernan were exhausted. You could hear Stafford and Cernan agree with Mission Control that the spacewalk should be delayed until the following day. In anticipation of the spacewalk, Stafford maneuvered Gemini 9 away from the docking adapter. Trying to maintain station keeping around the adapter was consuming fuel. After moving away from the adapter, Stafford and Cernan got some rest before attempting the spacewalk. The spacewalk that NASA had planned was going to be rather complicated, at least with hindsight. Cernan was going to be the astronaut to perform the spacewalk, while Stafford would remain inside Gemini 9. Cernan was supposed to exit the spacecraft and make his way to the back of Gemini 9 in an area called the adapter section, where the astronaut maneuvering unit had been stored. You see, before launch on the ground, there is an adapter section to fit the Gemini 9 spacecraft onto the Titan II launch vehicle. This adapter section forms a little concave shape on the back of Gemini 9, where small packages can be stored. In the Gemini 5 mission, this was where the rendezvous evaluation pod had been stored. To get to the adapter section, Cernan had to climb over and around the spacecraft from the outside. During this entire time, he would be connected to Gemini 9 and its life support system with a tether. In order to help him get to the adapter section on Gemini 9, the McDonnell engineers had added footholds, handholds, and Velcro straps. 
a relatively new invention at the time. Once at the adapter section, Cernan was to put on the astronaut maneuvering unit. He would then use the unit to maneuver around the spacecraft. During this entire time, Cernan was to remain tethered to Gemini 9 and the life support system. Before the mission, there had been a lot of debate between NASA and the Air Force about whether the astronaut should remain tethered. The Air Force did not want the tether to fully test the unit. They also argued that the tether could be a danger in itself. For example, if Gemini 9 started to spin like Gemini 8 had, Cernan would be spun around the spacecraft. NASA argued that prudence dictated keeping the tether so Cernan wouldn't accidentally float off into space. Further, if there was a problem with the spacecraft's thruster or any other issue, the safest course of action was to get Cernan back into the spacecraft as quickly as possible. A tether would help with that. The compromise was to keep the tether, but to install a real line so that there would be some slack, allowing Cernan to feel what it would be like to be free-floating. Putting on the astronaut maneuvering unit was not going to be an easy task. There were multiple pieces to the device that he had to fit together. Cernan had practiced the task in simulators on the ground over and over, to the point where he could put the unit on even if he were blindfolded. Nevertheless, in total, NASA allocated over three hours for this spacewalk. That meant that Cernan would fully orbit the Earth twice outside Gemini 9. On day three, Cernan proceeded with the spacewalk as planned, but the spacewalk did not go well at all. From the beginning, Cernan found that just getting to the adapter section was incredibly difficult. Every movement of his body caused a counteraction somewhere else on his body due to Newton's third law. He found that there weren't enough footholds and handholds. The Velcro straps were not strong enough to keep him in place. The long tether also made things difficult. When Cernan let the tether string out for any distance, he found it would snake around. While wearing the spacesuit, he could not feel the tether or easily see it. On Earth, a person could probably use some intuition to guess where the tether was based on gravity and the force that they applied to the tether, but this intuition did not work in space. Eventually, Cernan got to the adapter section. He started to prepare the astronaut maneuvering unit. This took much longer than at practice. 
Again, every time he moved his body, there was a counter-reaction somewhere else on his body. He kept having to grab onto the spacecraft to steady himself. He also couldn't fully relax, because every time he did, he found that he tended to drift away. The situation then got worse when the faceplate on his suit started to fog. He did not feel particularly hot or cold, but the environmental conditions kept causing the faceplate to fog up. He had practiced putting together the astronaut maneuvering unit so many times, however, that the fogging did not prevent Cernan from being able to do the job, though it did make the job harder. When he was about 80% done preparing the unit, Cernan wondered whether the spacewalk should continue. Even if he finished preparing the astronaut maneuvering unit, flying it when his faceplate was fogged up was probably too dangerous. Even if he did fly the unit, he wondered whether he could successfully take it off afterwards. He would need to hold on to the spacecraft with one hand to steady himself while holding on to the unit with the other, and he'd have to do all this with a fogged faceplate. As Cernan was contemplating this, one other factor weighed against continuing with the mission. With the astronaut maneuvering unit mostly prepared, he switched communication channels from the tether to the unit. Using a radio in the unit, he was supposed to be able to talk to Stafford inside Gemini 9 as well as Mission Control. But when Cernan tested the audio, Stafford reported being totally unable to hear Cernan. At this point, Cernan decided to give up. Because Cernan is still on the astronaut maneuvering unit's radio, Stafford relays the following message to Mission Control. Houston, uh, is here, Gemini 9. We're reading you pretty weak. Go ahead. Gemini 9, Houston, go ahead. Thank you. 
That audio is pretty hard to hear. At the beginning, they just weren't able to communicate at all over the radio. But near the end there, you can hear Stafford say that the use of the AMU is a no-go. A few minutes later, Cernan returns to using the communications line in his tether rather than the AMU. He then gives his own report to Mission Control, repeating some of what Stafford had already said. That audio is pretty bad too, but what Cernan says is no go for AMU, his faceplate had fogged up completely, the AMU transmitter didn't work, one of the attitude controller arms for the AMU wouldn't get into the right position, and he needed to spend about four to five times more energy performing tasks than had been practiced. Mission Control agreed that the spacewalk should end in light of the problems that Cernan had encountered. Cernan, mostly blind still from the fogged faceplate, groped his way along the spacecraft back to the cabin. When Cernan got back, Stafford had to put his faceplate right up against Cernan's faceplate in order to see him. The spacewalk lasted a little over two hours. After the spacewalk on June 6, 1966, after three days in space, Gemini 9 began re-entry to go home. Gemini 9 managed to score the most pinpoint landing to date, coming down just 0.7 kilometers from the planned landing area in the Atlantic Ocean. Afterwards, during the mission debriefing, Cernan would emphasize to anyone who would listen that the extravehicular activities in space were far more difficult than anyone anticipated. NASA had to account for the fact that any work in space would be four to five times harder for the astronaut compared to the same activity on Earth. Gemini 9 was considered largely to be a failed mission. Of the three mission objectives, docking, rendezvous, and spacewalk, only one had been completed successfully. But personally, I think the label of failure is a little harsh. The rendezvous techniques that Gemini 9 practiced and the testing of the radar versus optical approach for rendezvous were by far the most important elements of the mission 
in terms of support for the Apollo program. The docking mission was disappointing, but docking was not difficult. Gemini 8 seemed to have proved that already. The premature end to the spacewalk was a problem, but the fault there doesn't lie with Gemini 9. Rather, the fault lies with NASA for not attempting more spacewalks during earlier missions. Instead of trying to perform incrementally more difficult tasks during a spacewalk, NASA had decided to go from Gemini 4 where there was just a 20-minute spacewalk in which the astronaut's only goal was to exit the spacecraft, to Gemini 9, where Cernan had to spend three hours on a spacewalk climbing all over the spacecraft to put together a complicated device, fly around in it, and then put the unit back and climb back into the spacecraft. The leap between those two extravehicular activities was too great to accomplish without learning some steps in between, an opportunity that Gemini 9 provided. But there were good reasons for NASA's management to be critical and to treat Gemini 9 as a failed mission. For one thing, the failure of the docking mission and the inability to use the astronaut maneuvering unit denied NASA any publicly recognizable achievements. The failures of Gemini 9 also followed on the heels of the near disaster of Gemini 8, when nothing particularly significant except the docking was accomplished. Now, NASA had only three Gemini missions left, and too little had been achieved. Major objectives of the Gemini program still had not been completed. This included the use of the Agena to fly at high altitudes, where NASA could learn about radiation exposure beyond the Van Allen radiation belts. Going forward, NASA will plan ahead for alternative objectives that might be achieved if they encountered problems. They also needed to assess whether too much had been attempted during the Gemini 9 mission. For the next few episodes, we're going to take a break from the Gemini missions to talk about the Apollo program. Because by mid-1966, NASA will achieve several important objectives toward a manned landing on the moon. The first among these is making ready Launch Complex 39A for the massive Saturn V rocket. I'll cover that next time.